This event is presented by the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to today's session of the CFR Fall 2021 Academic Webinar Series. I'm Irina Faskanis, Vice President of the National Program and Outreach here at CFR. Uh, today's discussion is on the record and the video and a transcript will be available on our website, cfr.org academic. As always, CFR takes no institutional positions on matters of policy. We're delighted to have with us today, Jason Bordoff to talk about energy policy and efforts to combat climate change. Jason Bordoff is co-founding Dean of the Columbia Climate School, founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy and professor of professional practice in international and public affairs at Columbia University. He previously served as special assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Energy and Climate Change on the National Security Council. And he's held senior policy positions on the White House's National Economic Council and Council on Environmental Quality. Um, he's a columnist for Foreign Policy Magazine and is often on TV and radio. So we're really happy to have him with us today. So Jason, thank you very much. Um, we are just coming off uh, the COP26 conference that took place in Glasgow um, that uh, started on October 31st, I believe, and concluded last Friday, November 12th. Could you talk about um, what came out of the conference at a high level, if you think that the agreements that were reached are went far enough or didn't go far enough, and what your policy recommendations are to really advance and really um, fight the um, countdown that we have to the earth warming. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, first, thanks to uh, to you, Irina, and, and thanks to CFR for the invitation to be with you all today. Really delighted to have the chance to talk about these important issues. Uh, I was there for much of the, the two-week period in Glasgow, uh, representing the Energy Center uh, and the Climate School here at Columbia. Um, <clears throat> for uh, I, I think, you know, it's it's kind of a glass half full, glass half empty um, outlook coming out of Glasgow. So I think the Glasgow conference was notable in um, several respects. And uh, we'll look back on it, I think, and some of the things we will remember are, um, some of the things we'll remember, sorry, are, um, the role of the private sector and private finance, I think, was much more prominent in uh, in Glasgow this year. I think there were commitments around some important things like methane, a very potent greenhouse gas, was much higher on the priority list uh, in, in this UN climate meeting than in prior ones. You had pledges on deforestation and other things that are important. And then the final agreement did have some important uh, elements to it, particularly around Article 6 how you design carbon markets around the world. Um, but the glass half empty outlook is still, we are nowhere close to being on track for the kind of targets that countries and companies are committing to, net zero by 2050 or one and a half degrees warming. I think there were, there should be hope and optimism coming out of COP, the role of the youth uh, at Columbia. We were kind of honored to organize a private roundtable for President Obama with youth climate activists. It's hard to spend time with young people in COP or on campus here at Columbia or anywhere else and not be inspired by how passionately they take these issues. So the activism you saw in the streets, the sense of urgency among everyone, activists, civil society, governments, the private sector, 
um, felt different, I think, at this COP than other other COPs that I have attended or probably the ones I haven't attended. Um, but there was also, for some, I saw kind of work coming out of this and 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 we're on track for for below two degrees or you know the Fatih Brol, the head of the international energy agency tweeted that when you add up all the pledges we're on track for 1.8 degrees celsius warming um he's talking about all of the pledges meaning every country who's promised to be net zero by 2050 2060 2070 and at least from my standpoint there's a good reason to take those with a grain of salt they're not often backed up by concrete plans or ideas about how you would get anywhere close to achieving those goals. Um, so it's good that we have elevated ambition, which is kind of one of the core outcomes of, of the COP in Glasgow. But it is also the case that when you elevate ambition and the reality doesn't change as fast or maybe faster than the ambition is changing, what you have is a growing gap between ambition and reality. And I think that's where we are today. Um, Oil use is rising each and every year. Gas use is rising. Coal use is going up this year. I, mean, I don't know if it's going to keep going up, but at a minimum, it's going to plateau. It's not falling off a cliff. So the reality of the energy world today, which is 75% of emissions are energy, um, is not anything close to net zero by, by 2050. It is the case that progress is possible. So if you go back to before the Paris Agreement, we were on track for something like maybe 3.7 degrees Celsius of warming. If you look at the current outlook, it's maybe 2.7, 2.8, so just below three degrees. So progress is possible, uh, that's good. If you look at the nationally determined contribution pledges, so the commitments countries made that are more near term, there's more accountability for them, uh, the commitments they made to reduce emissions by 2030, their NDCs, we would be on track for around 2.4 degrees Celsius warming, assuming all those pledges are fulfilled. But history would suggest a reason to be a little skeptical about that. The US has a pledge to get to 50 to 52% reduction in emissions by 2030. And um, look at how, uh, how things are working or not working in Washington and make your own judgment about how likely it is that we'll put in place the set of policies that would be required to get to that ambitious level of decarbonization by 2030. And I think the same healthy dose of skepticism is warranted, you know, when you look elsewhere in the world. But even if we achieve all of those, we're still falling short of uh, below two degrees, nevertheless, 1.5. And so, I, again, I think the outcome from COP for me was optimism that progress is possible. We have made a lot of progress in the last 10 years. but acute concern that we're nowhere close to being on track to take targets like 1.5 degrees Celsius or net zero by 2050 uh, seriously yet. And we just need to be honest as a climate and energy community. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I live in both of those worlds. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between them, obviously, about how hard it is to achieve the goals we are talking about. Um, renewables have grown incredibly quickly. Optimistic headlines every day about what is happening in solar and wind. Costs have come down more than 90%. Battery costs have come down more than 90% in the last decade. But solar and wind create electricity and electricity is 20% of global final energy consumption. The outlook for electric vehicles is much more promising today. And lots of companies like Ford and others are committing to be uh, all electric by, by a certain you know, date 10 or 20 years from now. Um, cars are 20% of global uh, oil demand. About half of the emission reductions, cumulative emission reductions between now and 2050 will need to come from technologies that are not yet available at commercial scale and sectors of the economy that are really hard to decarbonize, like steel and cement and ships and airplanes, we're not 
uh, we don't have all the tools we need uh, to do those yet. And then at, 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 in Glasgow, the focus of a lot of what we did at Columbia was on, uh, we did a lot of different things, but one of the key areas of focus was the challenge of thinking about decarbonization in emerging and developing economies. I don't think we talk about that enough. The issue of historical responsibility of loss and damage was more on the agenda this year, and I think you'll hear even more about it in the year ahead. The next COP is in Africa. There was growing tension between rich and poor countries at this COP. Um, I think a starting point was just you know, what we see in the pandemic alone and how inequitable around the world the impacts of the pandemic are. Many people couldn't even travel to Glasgow from the global south because they couldn't get vaccinated. We need between now and 2050, uh, estimates are a ballpark, $100 trillion of additional investment in clean energy if we're going to get on track for 1.5 net zero by 2050. So the question that should obsess all of us who work in this space are where will that money come from? Most of it's going to be private sector, not public. Most of it is going to be in developing and emerging economies. Uh, that is where the growth in energy is going to come from. 800 million people have no access to energy at all. Nevertheless, if you model what energy access means, it's often defined as, you know, you have enough to turn on lights or charge your cell phone. But when you talk about even a fraction of the standard of living we take for granted, driving a car, having a refrigerator, having an air conditioner, the, the, the numbers are massive. They're just huge. And the population of Africa is going to double to 2, 2 billion by, by the year 2050. So these are really big numbers. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we, we need to recognize how, how, how hard uh, this is. But we should also recognize that it is possible. We have uh, a lot of the tools we need. We need innovation in technology and we need stronger uh, policy, whether it's a carbon price or standards for different sectors. Uh, and then, of course, we need private sector actors uh, to step up as well, uh, and all of us. And we had these great commitments to achieve these goals with a lot of capital being put to work. And now we need to hold people accountable to make sure that they do that. So again, I look back on the last two weeks or you know, before, you know, two weeks of, of COP, uh, the gap between ambition and reality um, got bigger. Not necessarily a bad thing. Ambition is a good thing. But now it's time to turn the ambition into action. We need governments to follow through on their pledges. Uh, good news is we have a wide menu of options for reducing emissions. The bad news is there's not a lot of time at our current rate of emissions. Uh, and their emissions are still going up each and every year. They're not even falling yet. And remember, what, what matters is the cumulative total, not the annual flow. Um, at our current rate of emissions, the budget, carbon budget for staying below 1.5 is used up in, you know, around a decade or so. So there's not much time uh, to get to get to work. Um, but uh, I'm really excited about what we're building with the first climate school in the country here at Columbia when it pushes, when it comes to pushing, turning ambition into action. Uh, that requires research, it requires education, and it requires engaging with partners in civil society and the public sector and the private sector uh, to help turn that research into action. And the people we're working with here every day on campus are the ones who are going to be the leaders that are going to hopefully do a better job <laughs> than uh, we've done over the last uh, last few decades. So whatever you're doing at your educational institution, be it teaching or research or, or learning, um, we all have a role to play in the implementation of responsible forward thinking energy policy. And I'm really excited to have the chance to talk with you all today. Uh, look forward to your questions and to the conversation. Thank you again. Jason, that's fantastic. Thank you very much um, for that um, informative and sobering view. Uh, so let's turn to all of you now for your questions. So I'm gonna go first to, I have one raised hand from Stephen Cass. Okay, thank you. 
Jason, thank you uh, for that very useful and concise summary. Uh, what specific kinds of energy programs do you think developing countries should now be pursuing? Should they be uh, giving up coal entirely? Should they be importing natural gas? Uh, should they be investing in renewables or nuclear? What, what uh, recipe would you advise developing countries to pursue for their own energy needs? Uh, it's going to need to be a lot of different things. So there's no single answer to that, of course. And by the way, I just say it would be super helpful uh, if people don't mind just introducing yourself when you ask questions. That'd be helpful to me, at least. I appreciate it. Um, the um, I think they need to do a lot of different things. I think I would start with low hanging fruit and renewable electricity is not the entire answer. Those sun and wind or intermittent electricity can't do certain things yet like power ships and airplanes. But the low cost of solar and wind, I think does mean it's a good place to start. And then we need to think about those other sectors as well. I think a key thing there comes back to finance. And that's why we're spending so much time on it with our research agenda here. Uh, access to financing and cost of capital are really important. Uh, clean energy tends to be more capital intensive and then like solar and wind, more capex, less opex over time. Um, but obtaining financing in poor countries is really difficult and expensive. Uh, lack of experience with renewable energy. Um, local banks are often reluctant to lend to those kinds of projects. And then foreign investors, where most of that capital is going to come from, view projects uh, often in emerging markets and developing economies, particularly as more risky. Uh, local utilities may not be credit worthy. There's currency and inflation risk in many developing countries. Uh, people worry about recouping their upfront investment if bills are paid in local currency. There's political risk, maybe corruption, uh, inconsistently enforced regulations. And it can be harder to build clean energy infrastructure if you don't have other kinds of infrastructure like ports and roads and bridges and, and a good uh, electrical grid. So, um, so I, I would start there. And I think there's a role for those countries to uh, scale up their clean energy sectors, but also for policymakers and multilateral development banks and, and governments elsewhere. Uh, there was a lot of focus in, in Glasgow on whether the developed countries would make good on their promise made in Copenhagen to send $100 billion a year in climate finance to um, developing countries. And they fell short of that. But, but even that is kind of a rounding error compared to the one to two trillion a year that the International Energy Agency estimates is, is needed. So there are many other things besides just writing a check that governments uh, like the US, in the US or elsewhere can do. The Development Finance Corporation, uh, for example, can lend to banks at local uh, and affordable rates, finance projects in local currency, expand the availability of loan guarantees. I've written before about how I think even what often gets called industrial policy, let's think about some sectors in the same way China did with solar or batteries 15 years ago. Uh, are there sectors where governments might help to grow uh, domestic industries and by doing that scale, bring down the cost of technologies that are expensive now, the premium for you know low carbon or zero carbon cement or steel. It's just, it's not reasonable to ask a developing country to build new cities and new highways and all the new construction they're going to do with zero carbon steel and cement because it's just way too expensive. So how do you bring those costs down if we think about investments we can make uh, through uh, US infrastructure or other spending to do that, that not only may help to grow some domestic industries and jobs here, 
but can be its own form of global leadership if we're driving those costs of those technologies down and make it cheaper for others uh, to pick up. So um, I think that's that's one of the places I'd start, but there are a lot of other things we need to do too. Thank you. I'm gonna take the next question. Um, and let me just go back. Stephen uh, Cass is an adjunct professor at NYU. So the next question, um, it's a written question from Wei Liang, uh, who is an assistant professor of international policy studies at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And the question is, I wonder if you could briefly address the Green Climate Fund and individuals, countries pledge on that. Yeah, I mean, it touches a little bit on what I said a moment ago about the, the need for um, developed countries to uh, provide climate finance to developing countries. And so I think that's, it's important that we take those obligations seriously and that we um, in, in advanced economies uh, step up and make those funds available. Uh, and but we're, but again, we're, we're talking the, the amount we're still talking about is is so small compared to the amounts that are needed to deal both with the impacts of climate change and then also to curb climate change to mitigate climate change because we know that developing countries are in the parts of the world that will often be most adversely impacted by climate impacts, uh, droughts and heat waves and and storms and and, and food security issues. Um, are from a from a standpoint of equity are the parts of the world that have done the least to cause this problem uh, are responsible for very few emissions. If you look cumulatively at, at emissions since the start of the industrial age about half nearly half have come from the US and EU combined 2% from the entire continent of Africa. Uh, so are not using very little energy today, haven't therefore contributed to the problems and have the fewest resources, of course, to cope with the impacts and also to develop in a cleaner way. Sometimes it's cheaper to clean, develop in a cleaner way. Renewables are often today competitive with coal, even without subsidy, but, but there are many areas where that's not the case and, and there is a cost and, uh, and we need to help make sure that, you know, we're thinking about what a just transition looks like. Uh, and that means many different things for different communities, uh, whether you're a coal worker or an agricultural worker in California that may you know, be working outside in, in worse and worse heat. But it also means thinking about the parts of the world that need assistance to make this transition. So I think we need to be taking that much more seriously. Next question is a raised hand from Tara Weil, who is an under, a undergraduate student at Panoma College. Hi. Um, so given that developed nations are the largest contributors to carbon emissions, as you've said, um, how can larger powers be convinced as to the importance of addressing global inequality with regards to climate change? And thank you so much also for giving this talk. Yeah, thank you for, for being here. Um, I, I, uh, I don't have a great answer to your question. I mean, the politics of foreign aid in general are not great, as we often hear in events at CFR. So I do think, um, one, we, we need to uh, continue to uh, encourage through political advocacy, civil society, and other ways, uh, governments and advanced economies to think about all the tools they have at their disposal um, I think the ones that are going to be, I'm, 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 I'm reluctant to try to speak as a political commentator rather than a climate and energy commentator on what's going to work politically. Um, but, but part of that is demonstrating what 
it's not just generosity, it is also in one's self-interest to do these things. And that, just look at the pandemic, right? <laughs> what would it look like for the US to show greater leadership uh, or any country to show even greater leadership and help uh, cope with the pandemic all around the world in parts of the world that are struggling to vaccinate their people? That is not only an act of generosity, but it is clearly one of self-interest too, because it's a pretty globalized economy and, uh, and, and you're not gonna be able to get a pandemic under control at home if it's not under control abroad. Of course, the same is true with the impacts of climate change. It doesn't matter where a ton of CO2 comes from. And um, we can decarbonize our own economy, but the US is only 15% of annual emissions globally. So it's not gonna make a huge difference unless everyone else does that uh, as well. Uh, there is also the potential, uh, I think, to, and, and we see this increasingly when you look at the discussion of the Biden infrastructure bill, how they talk about the US-China relationship, which of course are the two most important countries for the, from the standpoint of climate change. It is one of cooperation. That was one of the uh, success stories in Glasgow was a commitment to cooperate more. We'll see if we can actually do it because it's a pretty difficult and tense US-China relationship right now. So the question is, can you separate climate from all of those other problems on human rights and intellectual property and everything else and then cooperate on climate? It's been hard, but there's a renewed commitment to try to, to do that. But also uh, a recognition that action in clean energy space is not only about cooperation, it's also about economic competition. And uh, you have seen more and more focus on both the Republican and Democratic sides of the aisle on thinking about the security of uh, supply chains and critical minerals and the inputs in lithium and rare earth elements that go into many aspects of clean energy. Um, to my point before about aspects of industrial policy that might help grow your own domestic economy, I think there are ways in which countries can take measures that help that 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 help their own economies and help workers and help great jobs and, and and that in the process are helping to drive forward more more quickly the clean energy technologies we need and bring down the cost of those technologies to make them more accessible and available in some of the uh, less developed countries. So I think trying to frame it less as do we keep funds at home? Do we write a check abroad? But there are actually many steps you could do that create economic opportunities uh, and are win-win. Um, without being Pollyannish about it, I think there is some truth to some of those, and I think we can focus on those politically as well. Thank you. I'm going to take uh, an international question uh, from Luciana Alexandra Gisha, who is an Associate Professor for International Cooperation at the University of Bucharest. What type of topics do you think we should address immediately in university programs that provide training on climate, development, global policies, or international public affairs so that a new generation of leaders really pushes forward the agenda on climate change? Yeah, well, I'll say a quick word about what we're doing at Columbia, and, and maybe it's in, in relevant to, the, to that question, because Columbia has made this historic commitment to build a climate school. Uh, there are many initiatives and centers and institutes. There's not only a handful of schools, law school, business school, medical school, engineering school, and it, it is the largest commitment a university can make to any particular topic is something on the scale of a school with degree granting authority and tenure granting authority and all the things that come with a school. And it's just the scale at a place like Columbia and, and most many other places is, is just enormous. That's what we're doing on climate. We've created a climate school and I'm honored President Bollinger asked me to help lead it. 
Um, and we're going to build a faculty. We have our first inaugural class of master students, about 90 students that are going through the program right now and, and have a building in Manhattan uh, for the climate school and, and on and on. Um, the idea, but the question is, what is climate, right? Because academia has been historically organized into traditional academic disciplines. So you have people who you hire through a tenured search and they do, they go to the engineering faculty and build their lab there. And then there's law professors and there's business school professors and on and on and on social work. But for climate, you need all of those, right? They all kind of need to come together and, and like interdisciplinary doesn't even sort of do justice to what it means to think about approaching this this systemic, it's a systemic challenge. The, the system has to change. Uh, and so whatever solution you're talking about, if you wanna get hydrogen to scale in the world, let's, you know, for certain sectors of the economy that may be hard to do with renewable energy or you turn the renewable energy into say green hydrogen, you need engineering breakthroughs to bring down the cost of electrolyzers. You need new business models. You need financial uh, institution frameworks that figure out how you're going to put the capital into these things. You need the policy incentives. How are you going to, you need permitting and how do we permit hydrogen infrastructure? It's barely been done before. Uh, there are concerns in the environmental justice community about some aspects of uh, technologies like that or carbon capture that need to be taken seriously and addressed. There are geopolitical uh, implications potentially to starting to build a global trade in ammonia or hydrogen and what security concerns, energy security concerns might accompany those the way maybe we thought about oil uh, or, or gas from Russia into Europe. I have an article coming out in the next issue of Foreign Affairs about the geopolitics of the energy transition. So we need disciplines that come together and look at a problem like that in all of those multifaceted dimensions so we can figure out how to get it from the lab to scale out in the world. And so when we think about the areas of concentration here, climate finance, climate justice, uh, climate and society, uh, climate and international security, I mean, a range of things that I think are really important to help people uh, understand. Uh, and that's gonna be a major focus of what we do at the climate school here. Fantastic. Uh, let's go next to Sean Grosnigle, who has raised his hand, a graduate student at Fordham University. Speak now. Hi, this is uh, not Sean, but Henry Schwabenberg, also at Fordham, where I teach in our International Political Economy and Development Program. I went to a conference about a month ago in Rome, and it was a physicist from uh, CERN. And he was a big advocate of something I never heard of. And this is this thorium for nuclear reactors. And he was going through all the pros, but I wanted a more balanced um, uh, perspective on it. And I'm hoping that you might give me a little uh, pros and cons of this thorium uh, nuclear reactor technique. Yeah, I will be honest and say that, uh, and nuclear is not my area of focus. We have a pretty strong team here that works in nuclear and I think is optimistic about the breakthroughs we're going to see in several potential areas of nuclear, advanced nuclear technology, that being one of them, or small modular reactors uh, and, and, and others. I, at a high level, I, I will say I do think uh, if you're serious about the math of decarbonization and getting to net zero by 2050, it's hard to do without zero carbon nuclear power. It's firm baseload power, it runs all the time. Obviously there are challenges with intermittency of solar and wind, although they can be addressed to some extent with, with energy storage. Um, most of the analyses that are done uh, show not necessarily in the US, but in other parts of the world, significant growth in nuclear power. 
the International Energy Agency just modeled what it looks like to get to net zero by 2050 in this pathway that got a lot of attention for saying things like we would not be investing in new oil and gas supply. The world has to change a lot pretty quickly, uh, and they have about 100 new nuclear plants being built by 2030, so that's a pretty big uh, number. So um, we're going to need all tools <laughs> that we have at our disposal, and unfortunately, I worry we may still fall short. Uh, so I, I think um, at a high level, we need uh, to think really hard about how to improve nuclear technology. The people who know that really well, uh, I think, are optimistic about our ability to do that. And I will follow up on Thorium in particular with uh, my colleagues at Columbia and happy to follow up with you offline about it. Great. I'm going to take um, a written question from Stephen Bird, who's an associate professor of political science at Clarkson University. Um, he thanks you, uh, and he wanted you to talk a little bit more about political will. The overall dollar amounts are clear, uh, much cheaper to address climate change than to ignore it. That said, countries are clearly lagging. Is it a case that countries just don't want to take action now because of issues of fairness or because of lack of domestic political support, i.e. citizens aren't convinced that they should pay costs now with payoffs that come later? And what might we do to improve that issue in terms of persuading or arguing for more political will? Yeah, it's a question for, you know, a political scientist as much as an energy or climate expert. And I wish I had a better answer to it. I think it is, climate is one of the trickiest problems for so many reasons, but one of those is um, there is no acute event now that you sort of respond to, uh, hopefully, and, and, and pull everyone together. It's a set of things that, you know, of course, there would have been storms and droughts before, but we know they're intensified and made worse. It's hard to rally public support. We often respond to a crisis, a kind of proverbial, you know, frog in the boiling water kind of thing. Um, so that makes it hard. There are huge issues. We talked about a just transition a few minutes ago. There are huge issues with intergenerational equity when we talk about climate. The, there are clearly climate impacts and damages today, but some of the worst will be in the future, including for people who may not be born yet. And we don't do a great job in our political environment about thinking about, about those and valuing them today and how you do that. And from an economic standpoint, of course, there are questions about discount rates you apply and everything else. Um, I, I think politically, one of the things that has mobilized stronger climate support for climate action. So it is encouraging that if you look at polling on climate change, the, uh, the, the level of urgency that the public uh, in many countries, including the US broadly ascribed to acting on climate has gone up a lot. It's, it's higher today than it was you know, a decade or so ago. That's a result of people seeing the impacts and also advocacy campaigns and political campaigns. It is often tied to, um, well, we, it's like a win-win. Right? President Biden says when he thinks of climate, he thinks of jobs. And so we're going to deal with climate and we're going to grow the economy faster and we're going to create jobs. And there is truth to that. Uh, it is also the case that there are costs. Uh, the cost of inaction are higher, but there are costs associated with the transition uh, itself. So. Um, if you survey the American public, I think climate, according to the latest YouGov economist poll I saw, you know, was number two on the list of things they cared the most about. That's much higher than in the past. And then if you ask the American public, are they willing to pay 25 cents a gallon more at the pump to act on climate, 75% say no. 
And you look at the challenges the Biden administration is having right now, sort of thinking about a really strong set of measures to put in place to move the ball forward on climate, but acute concern today about where oil prices are and inflation and natural gas prices as we head into uh, the winter. If, if the weather's cold and it's gonna be really expensive for people to heat their homes in parts of some parts of the country like New England, maybe. So that's a reality. And I think we need to, it was interesting in the, in the round table we did with President Obama with climate activists, that was a message he had for them, you know, be impatient, be angry, keep the pressure on but also be pragmatic. And by that, he means like, you know, see, try to see the world through the eyes of others and people who are worried about the cost of filling up at the pump, the cost of paying their heating bills. They're not, they, some of them may not be where you are yet. They may not have the same sense of urgency with acting on climate that many of us on this Zoom do and need to take those concerns seriously. So I think that's a real challenge and it can be addressed with good policy to some extent right if you think about the revenue raised from a carbon tax and how it could be to redistribute it in a way that reduced the regressive impacts uh, i've written about how at a high level i'll say one last point um if we get on track for an energy transition which we're not on yet right we're, again oil and gas use are going up each and every year but imagine we started to get on track where those were falling year after year still going to take decades. And that process of transition is going to be really messy. It's going to be really volatile. It's, we're going to have fits and starts in policy from Obama to Trump to Biden. We're going to make uh, estimate and we're going to make, 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 make bets on technologies and maybe get those technologies wrong or, or, or misunderstand the cost curves, the potential to shut down investment in certain forms of energy before the rest are ready to pick up the slack. If it's messy and volatile and bumpy, that's not only harmful economically and geopolitically, it will undermine public support for stronger climate action. So you see like in Washington, they're selling off the strategic petroleum reserve because we're moving to a world beyond oil and also we have all this domestic oil now with shale. We need more, not fewer tools to mitigate volatility for the next several decades if we're serious about making this transition. And I think the same is true for thinking about sort of buffers you could build into geopolitics, foreign policy and national security, because there will be in a post oil and gas world, you know, you may say, well, we're not going to worry as much about the Middle East or, or about, you know, Russia's leverage in Europe. But there will be new risks uh, created. We can talk about what some of those might be, and we need new tools of foreign policy to mitigate those potential foreign policy risks. Thank you. I'm going to take the next question. Raised hand from Chloe Domrovsky, uh, adjunct instructor at NYU. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, thank you. Yes. Hi. Chloe Domorowski, adjunct at NYU and president and CEO of Disaster Recovery Institute International. Thanks for being with us, Jason. So my question is about the feasibility and your thoughts on all artificially altered clouds or solar geoengineering. What are the ethical and geopolitical implications of perhaps using this to buy a little time for our energy transition? Thanks. Yeah, super interesting question. And I will say again, I'm sort of think of myself as an energy expert so that is uh, where I spend more time than thinking about tools like solar geoengineering. Um, I guess it seems there's obviously huge risks associated with something like that, and we need to understand them. We need to do research. We need to figure out what those risks 
may be their global governance concerns. It's actually pretty cheap to do solar geoengineering. So what happens when some country or some billionaire decides they want to start spraying stuff into the atmosphere to cool the planet? And for those who don't know that, you know, solar geoengineering, I mean, you think of uh, after a volcano, the planet cools a little bit because of all the particulates uh, up in the atmosphere. Um, when you model in an energy system model, how much phasing out coal will reduce warming, you, you obviously have much less carbon dioxide emissions, but that's offset slightly, not completely, of course, it's offset a little bit by the fact that you have less local air pollution, which is a good thing from air pollution, but air pollution has a slightly cooling effect because you have these little particles floating around that reflect sunlight. So the idea is, can we create that artificially and cool the planet? And you can imagine lots of reasons why that could go wrong uh, when you're trying to figure out what, how much to put in there, what unintended consequences could be. You still have other impacts of carbon dioxide like ocean acidification. Maybe you go too far in, in one direction, that's you're setting the thermostat. That's why one of the companies doing carbon removal is called Global Thermostat. And you're kind of figuring out what temperature it should be. But I will say, so it, it, it's an area that needs research. And I think given how far we are away from achieving goals like 1.5 and net zero 2050, I guess what I would say is um, in the same way that when I worked in the Obama administration, it was, I don't say controversial, but there were some people who didn't want to talk about adaptation because it was kind of a more, um, there was a, mor a moral hazard problem there. It was, you know, less pressure to mitigate and reduce emissions if we thought adaptation was a solution. People worry about that from the standpoint of solar geoengineering, but the likelihood, I hope I'm wrong, but the likelihood that we roll the clock forward, you know, later this decade and we realize we've made progress, but we're still pretty far short. And the impacts of climate change in the same way the IPCC 1.5 report said, you know what, 1.5 is going to be pretty bad too. And that's even worse than we thought. The more we learn about climate, the more reason there is to be concerned, not less concerned. Um, it seems very plausible to me that we will kind of come to a growing consensus that we have to think about whether this technology can, as you said, buy us time. This is not something you do permanently. You need to get to net zero to stop global warming. But if you want to reduce the impacts of warming on the rate of Arctic sea ice melt and all the rest, can you buy time, extend the runway uh, by doing this for some number of decades? And uh, I think I don't have a strong view on the right answer to that, but I think it's something we certainly need to be thinking about researching and understanding what the consequences would be, um, because we're, we're going to have to figure out how to take more abrupt actions uh, to close that gap between ambition and reality, unless the reality starts to change much more quickly than is the case right now. Thank you. Uh, I saw a raised hand from Maya, uh, but she lowered it. So if you wanna raise your hand again, please do so. And in the meantime, I'm gonna take a written question from Jennifer Slaru, who's an assistant professor of energy and sustainability at George Mason University, um, was, CCS slash CCUS, which carbon capture and storage, carbon capture utilization and storage to, to write out those acronyms, promoted as a climate change solution in Glasgow. And was there pushback against this technology option as both a climate change solution and a support mechanism for continued fossil fuel use? Uh, there was some pushback, but I think actually um, more in the other direction. So I think there has been a growing recognition from many in the climate world that uh, 
carbon capture technology, carbon removal technology need to be part of the solution. I think there's almost no climate model at this point that shows how you would get to 1.5 degrees or net zero, 1.5 degrees without huge amounts of negative emissions, carbon removal. Some of that can be nature-based, uh, uh, but, but a lot of it will be, some of it will be technology-based uh, as well. And focusing on what we care about, which is the emissions, um, is is the most important thing. So this is not, I don't think, the primary thing you're going to do. You want to do the things that are easiest and cheapest and present the fewest risks. So putting a lot of renewables into the grid, uh, getting electric uh, electrification and, and in, into the vehicle fleet. There's a lot of things that you would do before that. But um, but if you think about some of the sectors of the economy we talked about before that are hard to decarbonize, like steel and cement, it may well be the case that carbon uh, capture is part of the technology there. There was a big announcement yesterday from the Net Power Alum Cycle Gas Plant in Texas that they had finally come online with delivering uh, net zero power to the grid. It was sort of a milestone in that technology. So we need to advance this technology and figure out how we're gonna how we're gonna get where we need to be. Um, need to hold that kind of technology accountable to make sure that it's actually meeting the standards we're talking about so that it actually is very low if not zero carbon um but uh but if you if you look at you know most of the scenarios i'm i'm aware of uh whether it's princeton did a study of net zero america how we get to net zero by 2050 in the us the international energy agency as i said did it for net zero globally uh, there is a meaningful role for carbon capture to some extent in the power sector in these heavy industry sectors like steel and cement uh, and then making say hydrogen some of that will be blue hydrogen most of it eventually will be green but there may be some role for um, blue hydrogen which is which is gas with carbon capture so i think if anything there's been a growing understanding that we need all tools on deck right away and again i fear even with all tools we may still fall short uh, great. There's a written question from Leila Bishara, who's at SUNY Farmingdale um, International Business. Uh, there was a New York Times article, Business Schools Respond to a Flood of Interest in ESG, um, talk, talking about the issue of the scarcity of skills in recent graduates to help with social impact, sustainable investments, climate finance, and social entrepreneurship. Um, and she wanted to know if there are resources that you could point the group to in terms of foundation courses or certification that would provide all students with a basic foundation? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, it's, it's a growing area of focus. And I think universities should be doing more in the Tamer Center at the Columbia Business School does a lot of work in ESG. We, we hosted a really interesting roundtable at the Center on Global Energy Policy yesterday on ESG. And I've actually been doing a lot of work thinking about that in the context of state-owned enterprises and national oil companies, which we don't talk about enough, but they're a really, really big part of, of the problem we're talking about. We tend to focus more on these very well-known private sector companies or financial institutions in places like um, New, New York. Um, so there, uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies has done a huge amount uh, in this space. I think there are some really good educational programs with some universities and business schools that have done a lot in, in, in the ESG space. Um, but I think it's, an, it's, a, it's a need, to be frank. I mean, the fact that you're asking the question, and I'm pointing to a few examples, but not a huge number. Um, and it is something that universities need to educate themselves about, but then is an opportunity for us to educate others, maybe a revenue one too with executive education or something, but there's a lot of 
companies and financial institutions that want to understand this better. I worry that while there's a huge growing focus on climate, which is a good thing in the financial community, um, the phrase ESG kind of means so many different things right now. It's this alphabet soup of, of regulations and standards and disclosure requirements, and some may make a difference and some may not, and it's hard to figure out which ones matter. And for people who want to do the responsible thing, what does that really mean? That's an area where research is needed. I mean, that's a role for what we do every day to think about if the SEC is going to regulate uh, what makes a difference and what doesn't, if you're going to create green bonds, if you're going to call everything green uh, in the finance community, um, what's real and what's not, what moves the needle, what doesn't, what are the returns uh, for, for greener portfolios, how was that affecting the cost of capital for clean energy versus dirty energy, you know, on and on. I think those are important research questions for us to take on, and then it's our job to help educate others as well. Great. Uh... So the next question I'm going to take from, oh, okay, good. Maya Copeland has written her question. She's a political science major at Delaware State University. Uh, do you believe developed nations like the U.S. have done a lot in reference to climate change or mostly talk? Um, if you believe nations like the U.S. have dropped the ball in this aspect, what do you think it would take to get those powerhouses serious about environmental change? Um. I think advanced economies have done, many have done a lot. I mean, the European Union has taken climate seriously and has reduced emissions and has pretty strong measures in place with a, a carbon market, for example, with a pretty high carbon price right now. Uh, the politics of this issue are not quite as favorable in the US, but the US has seen emissions decline um, more than most over the last decade and a half in part because of policy measures that have you know, advanced uh, renewable energy and brought the cost of that down, uh, as well as cheaper natural gas displacing coal for a while. Um, but but at, at, a, at a broader level, you know, have we done enough? The answer is no one's done enough, <laughs> which is why emissions are still going up uh, every single year. So that uh, so the answer is no we, we haven't done enough uh, almost no country has done enough at home to be on 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 a trajectory for net zero 2050 you saw the announcements from countries like india saying we'll get to net zero by 2070 and you know people said oh well that's terrible they're not saying 2050 and, and implicit in that is sort of saying well if you want to get global to net zero by 2050 we're not all going to move at the same speed, right? Some countries have advanced with the benefit of hydrocarbons since the industrial age, and some haven't. So presumably the pathways are going to look different, right? And you know that's not always how countries uh, in the advanced in the, in the developing in the developed world talk about it. Uh, the commitment from the Biden administration is net zero by 2050. Um, so I, I would say there's been uh, there are some models to point to of countries that have taken this issue seriously but we're not doing enough. Uh, and partly because the political will is not there. And partly I, I come back to what I said before, this problem is harder than people realize. So you say, which countries are doing enough? Like point to some models, right? And somebody might point to Norway, which you know the share of new vehicles sold that are electric in Norway went from zero to, I think it's 70% now. I mean, that's amazing. 70% of new car sales are electric. And if you go back to the start of that trajectory, about a decade or a decade and a half, oil demand is unchanged in Norway. So we can talk about why that is. 
And it's because a lot, as I said earlier, a lot of oil is used for things other than cars, and it's increased for trucks and planes and petrochemicals. It takes time for the vehicle fleet to turn over. So when you start selling a bunch of electric cars, you know, average cars on the road for 15 years. So it takes a while before that vehicle stock turn turns over. So I, I, I saw that kind of mapped out on a chart recently, just two lines. <laughs> One is electric vehicle sales going straight up, and then the other is oil demand and a flat line. It's a reminder of how unforgiving the math of decarbonization is. The math of climate is really is really unforgiving, like, you know, the kind of harmful impacts we're going to see with even 1.5 degrees warming. But the math of energy and decarbonization is really unforgiving, too. It's um, and we just need to be honest with ourselves about how, how what, what it takes to get where we need to go, because uh, because I, I think it's good to have optimism and ambition. But I, I worry there should there should be optimism, but not happy talk. It should, it should, we should recognize that there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and let's get to work doing it. Great. So there's several questions in the chat about China. Um, I'm going to start off with Andrew Campbell, who's a student at George Mason University. Um, is LNG, liquefied natural gas, a bridge toward renewable energy still being considered? If not, how are China, India and China's expected growth and increase in coal use going to be addressed? And then there are a couple of other comments or questions about China. You know, what's your take on China's the biggest emitter and return somewhat to coal? Can we actually even make stated inadequate new goals? And, you know, given the relationship between U.S. and China, which is contentious, um, you know, what is the cooperation going to be between U.S. and China on climate? So there's a lot packed in there, but I know you can address it all. <laughs> yeah. Um the the i think the china question is really hard as i said earlier it's kind of like competition and cooperation and we're going to try to do both and i think there was a hope early on secretary kerry said it that climate could be segmented from the broader challenges in the u.s china relationship and i think that has proven harder to do than people had hoped in part because you know you, you, you need both parties to want to do that i think china has signaled it's not necessarily willing to segment cooperation on climate from lots of other uh, issues. Um, and then these things bleed together where, you know, there's um, measures being taken in Washington to restrict imports of solar panels from China that there are concerns are made with, with, with um, in ways that have human rights abuses associated with them, with forced labor, or maybe have unfair trade practices uh, in terms of uh, subsidies. Um, China is, uh, you know, the leadership in China is, takes climate seriously. This is a country that recognizes, I think, um, climate change is real and that um, needs to be addressed. They have a set of national interests that matter a lot, obviously, to them in terms of economic growth. Uh, and the pathway to get there is, is, um, is challenging. So it's a country that's growing clean energy incredibly quickly as we're seeing right now, in part because there's a energy crunch throughout Europe and Asia, they are ramping up uh, the use of coal quite a bit again, uh, but also taking some pretty strong measures to, to advance clean energy and over time, hopefully move in a lower carbon direction for reasons both about concerns over climate, but also local air pollution, which is much, much worse uh, in China, many parts of China than it is here. And that's 
a huge source of concern for the public there. So when it comes to things like coal, they need to figure out how to address those air pollution problems. And then for reasons of economic competition, like I mentioned a minute ago, I mean, China dominates the global market for refining and processing of critical minerals for solar panels. Um, and there are economic and national uh, competitiveness and strategic reasons uh, to do that. So all of those things motivate them uh, to move in a direction of clean energy, but they need to be moving faster to face down uh, hydrocarbon energy for sure. And then you ask a really hard question about, uh, not hard, but one of the most contentious questions is about the role of natural gas in the transition. And we can have a whole separate session uh, about that. I think um, there is a view of many in the climate community and and, and many in, in, in developing countries, in developed countries, that there's not space left in the carbon budget for natural gas. And you saw the Biden administration recently declare through the Treasury Department that, except in very rare cases of the poorest of the poor, like Sierra Leone or something, they would not finance natural gas projects through the multilateral development banks. Uh, the vice president of Nigeria, I think, responded, speaking of CFR, in foreign affairs by writing that this was not fair and you need to think about a viable pathway for a country like Nigeria to develop. And it just it doesn't work to get there that fast. There has to be a, a bridge. The role of gas looks very different in different parts of the world. It looks different in the U.S. than it does in uh, an emerging or developing economy. It looks different in the power sector where there are a lot of more alternatives like renewables than it does in uh, heavy industry or how we heat our homes. Uh, it looks different for, say, in the global south, where you're talking about people who are still using coal and uh, charcoal and, and, and dung for, for cooking to think about solutions like liquefied petroleum gas. So all of those things are true, but we need to think about gas uh, also with the carbon budget in mind. I mean, the math is just the math. <laughs> if you're going to build any gas infrastructure and not have it blow through the carbon budget, it's going to have to be retired before the end of its normal economic life and you need to think about how uh how that might look in different parts of the world so you need to be fair to people to allow them to grow but also recognize that the math of of carbon you know is what it is <clears throat> uh, great i just want to credit uh, those last um the china questions came from leda kochiva at uh, north carolina's State University and Joan Kaufman, um, who's director of Schwartzman Scholars based in China. I, we are really at the end of our time. We started a couple minutes late, and I just wanted to go back to um, their students on the call who are following uh, with a professor on the webinar. I wanted you to, just to comment on blue hydrogen, um, it, whether or not it is uh, contributing or helping to reduce greenhouse gases. I think the answer is it can. You just need to make sure that it actually does. So the question of what, and by blue hydrogen, we mean you know using gas with carbon capture to create hydrogen. Um, the it needs to have very low methane leakage rates. It needs to have very high capture rates, and we know that is technically possible. It doesn't mean it will be done that way. So if people are going to pursue blue hydrogen as part of the solution uh, in the uh, particularly in the near term you need to make sure that it's meeting those standards. I think in the long run, um, my, my guess, and I think most, most guesses would be that green hydrogen is gonna make more sense. Uh, it's gonna be cheaper, the cost is going to come down. Um, and so if we have a significant part of the energy sector that is hydrogen and ammonia in say 2050, more of that's gonna be green than blue. But there can be a role for blue if you make sure it's done the right way. You just have to actually make sure it's done the right way. 
Great. And Jason, we are out of time, but I wanted to give you a one last, you know, one minute uh, or 30 seconds, whatever you want, just to say some parting words on um, your work at the center or, uh, you know, to leave the group with what they can do again. So. Well, I, I would just say thanks for the chance to be with you all and for the work that you're doing every day. You know, I think Glasgow was a moment when the world came together to elevate ambition and roll up our sleeves and say, this is this is the decisive decade. Like, we'll know 10 years from now if, if we got anywhere close to making it or not. And so it's time for everyone to kind of roll up their sleeves and say, what can we do? We're doing that, I think, at Columbia with the creation of this new climate school. We do that every day at the Center on Global Energy Policy. And so just in all of your institutions, you know, what does that mean for you? What does it mean for the institution? What does that mean for your own research and time and how you allocate it? Um, how do we step up and say, what can we do in the biggest and boldest way we can? Because we, we need we're creating a climate school because I think the view is, you know, 100 years ago, there were no schools of public health. And now it's how, how would you deal with a pandemic without a school of public health? So I think our view is decades from now, we'll look back and wonder how we ever thought it was possible to handle a problem as complex and urgent as climate change without universities devoting their greatest kind of resource to them. And the measure of success for universities has to be research and new knowledge creation, it has to be education, it has to be serving our own communities. For us, it's, you know, the community here in New York or Harlem. But also, are we focusing the extraordinary resources and capacity and expertise of these great institutions to solve humanity's greatest problems? Um, that has to be a motivating force too for, for much of, maybe not all of, but a lot of what universities do. So I just ask all of us to go back and think about how we can do that in our own uh, work every day. And, and we have to do it through partnerships. I think universities don't work together as well as they need to, but this is only going to work if we work together. Great way to end. Thank you very much, Jason Bordup. We really appreciate it. Um, we'll have to look for your article in Foreign Affairs magazine, which is published by CFR. So we, we're excited that you can you continue to contribute to the magazine. Uh, you can follow Jason Bordoff on Twitter at Jason Bordoff. Very easy to remember. Uh, and our final academic webinar of the semester will be on Wednesday, December 1 at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Michelle Gavin, who is CFR's Ralph Bunge Senior Fellow for Africa Policy Studies, will talk about African politics and security issues. So in the meantime, follow us at CFR underscore academic. Come to CFR.org, foreignaffairs.com, and thinkglobalhealth.org uh, for research and analysis on global issues. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Take care. Thank you. For more event audio, subscribe on iTunes or visit us at CFR.org.